Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. You know, when we open this book and we begin to read it, we're reading and entering into an ancient world. We're reading about ancient cultures with ancient values and ancient worldviews. And as we do that, we are told by both biblical and secular historians that the world that we're entering in, in terms of women, uh, had a very low view of them. In that world, women were marginalized, they were second-class citizens at best, and they were treated as property at worst. Women typically were not allowed to get an education. They could not testify in a court of law because their testimony was considered untrustworthy or unreliable. And they really only found meaning and purpose in domestic duties, such as raising children and managing a home, which was very, very meaningful and valuable to them. But really, there were limited opportunities elsewhere. As we read some of the writers of the biblical world, particularly the first century world, we'll read things like this. This is a a Jewish historian from the first century named Josephus, where we get a lot of background information in terms of Jesus' world. And he says this, he's talking about the Old Testament law, and he says that the Old Testament law holds women to be inferior in all matters. Another writer, first century Jewish philosopher named Philo, writes that women and female traits are examples of weakness, therefore they should stay home and pursue a life of seclusion. We also know that there was a Jewish prayer that goes, really dates back to a first century tradition. And Jewish men were to pray three benedictions every day. And in one, he was to pray that he was very thankful to God that he was not a woman. So what we need to understand as we enter into these, this ancient world of the Bible and these ancient cultures and ancient worldviews, both Old Testament and New Testament, both Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures, they were male-centered, male-dominated, male-led, and patriarchal. It was a tough life for all people during the first century, but it was especially tough and especially hard for the women living in the first century. This is the world that Jesus was born into. This is the worldview that Jesus inherited. So as we open our Bibles and we begin to read the Gospels, that tell us really the story of Jesus, then we realize that Jesus is radically countercultural 
in terms of his view of women. And what we begin to see is that Jesus treated women very differently than the other religious leaders and the other people and the other men of his culture and society. Jesus valued women. He talked with women, even women that kind of had a checkered past and made some pretty big time mistakes. He loved them. He cared for them. He nurtured them. He healed them. He healed their children. And he invited them into his ministry in extraordinary ways. And so that's what we really want to look at today. We're going to just kind of look at really four key points. And under those points will be an example from Scripture. I'm going to call these uh, kind of scriptural snapshots. If you follow my preaching and you've been here and you've listened to me, I often Uh, I'm kind of what's known as an expository preacher. That's my main style. And I like to pick one key text and then just go really deep into that text and just bring supporting scriptures in around it. But we're not going to be able to do that today just for the sake of time. But we're going to look at snapshots, little glimpses of the life of Christ in particular in how he treated women with such dignity, such worth, and such respect. So the first one's going to be found in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And the point that uh, we're going to see from this passage and others is that women were invited into Jesus' kingdom mission. That's the first point I want us to, to think about. Jesus were invited into Jesus' kingdom mission. Very countercultural to all of the other first century rabbis who did not really include women in their teaching and their ministries. Women were invited into Jesus' kingdom mission. Let's look at Luke chapter 8. We're going to read a passage at the beginning of this chapter. But before we do, we always have to look around at the context. And what's interesting is that right before Luke 8, at the end of chapter 7, we read the story of how Jesus was anointed by a sinful woman. I want to just kind of share that story. We won't read it, but share it just because it sets the stage for what we're going to read next. Jesus was actually invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee at the end of Luke chapter 7, a very prominent leader and a religious leader, a Pharisee. And he invited him for a dinner. And Jesus came and he's He's laying at the table, and that's kind of an interesting term, but that's how they did it in their world. They would lay down, uh, really kind of on a, on a uh, carpet in the middle of the room. They would prop their heads up uh, with one arm, and the food would all be in the middle, and their feet would be on the outer skirts of the circle, if you will. And in formal ceremonies, women and uh, the community would actually be invited to kind of look in. They could look through the windows. They could gather, especially if you had somebody of status. And Jesus was certainly that type of person at this time. And so there were other people there just kind of looking in, almost like flies on the wall, listening to the conversation with Simon the Pharisee and his other friends and Jesus that he was hosting. Well, in the middle of that engagement, that dinner, suddenly Jesus realizes that somebody is kneeling at his feet and he begins to feel water touching his 
his feet, which would have been very um, dusty and dirty from the travel of their day, walking in that environment. And suddenly he feels this water, this moisture, and it's a woman kneeling at his feet, weeping uncontrollably. And she then wipes off the, the kind of the, the, the mud that was developing on his feet, wipes it with her hair, and then he, she anoints his feet with a very valuable perfume. And then Jesus looks at her at the end of chapter 7, and he says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. She was a woman with a checkered past, a bad moral reputation. And Jesus loved her. He accepted her repentance, her tears, and said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think that just sets the stage for what we're talking about. How Jesus treated women, all women, in his day and age with dignity, with worth, and with respect. Then look what we read next. Right after this, we have this story. I think it's very significant. Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3 says, After this, meaning after this banquet meal and this event, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. He's going on mission trips. And what's he doing? He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And the twelve, of course, means the twelve disciples. But then look what verse 2 says, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And there were three that he's going to name. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Mary was from Magdala. That's a village on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, they just recently, archaeologists have recently found it. It's on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so she was from that town. She was called Magdalene. And uh, had this amazing miracle where demons, seven, were cast out of her. And then the next woman was Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Who in the world is this? Well, Herod is not the Herod the Great that was the king when Jesus was born, but it was actually one of Herod's sons. Typically, he's referred to as Herod Antipas. And this was no friend of Jesus or of Christianities. Herod Antipas was the one who murdered John the Baptist. And in this household would have been a very important person, the manager of his household, an upper class leader, royalty, so to speak. And his wife, we're told, uh, was named Joanna and became a believer. And then we find a third woman named Susanna, which nothing is really revealed about her. And then it says it wasn't just these three, but many others uh, were there as well. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Very interesting. These were women, probably all who had been healed from some kind of disease or situation. In Mary's case, demonic oppression and possession. They were healed by Jesus and in gratitude they come along with him and uh, are supporting him financially. These were upper class women, very unusual for their world because they came from upper class families. And they were sharing their own means, out of their own means, support for Jesus financially. But was it more than that? Were they traveling with Jesus just to kind of fund him, kind of pay the bills, and that's it? 
Or were they traveling with him just to kind of do the cooking and the cleaning and the serving of all of the other men that were there? They probably did serve. That was a high value in Jesus' economy. I mean, that was called for everyone, all believers. What they were doing, I believe, is exactly what everyone else was doing. They were helping Jesus to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And so they were invited very much into Jesus' kingdom mission. We can celebrate that, men and women alike, serving alongside our Lord and our King. Another passage is in Luke 10. If you'll just flip over a couple of pages. Luke 10, verse 1 of Luke 10. After Jesus has just talked to his disciples at the end of chapter 9 about counting the cost and the fact that ministry was going to be hard, you have to count the cost. And ministry needs to be a priority. He told even one person who said, can I just go and bury my my father, my family? And he basically said, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Saying this is to be one of the highest priorities of a believer's life. Well, after this, Jesus then appoints, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So again, another mission trip. This time he has 72 people that are being appointed. And interestingly, it says he sent them out two by two. What does that sound like? Does that remind you of anything in Scripture, two by two? Go back to the story of Noah and the ark, right? Probably that's what you were thinking of, or at least I was. What were the two? They were male and female going out so they could, in Noah's case, so they could uh, continue with populating the earth. Well, Jesus doesn't tell us who these 72 were, but we often just kind of default to thinking they were men. But I really don't think that's the correct thing. I think most of these pairs would have been husbands and wives going out. In fact, you might remember when we studied Romans chapter 16, we meet a couple in Romans 16, 7 named Andronicus and Junia. And there is one of the greatest compliments and commendations we hear in all of Scripture given to this couple that said that they were not just apostles, which would have been the highest authority in the early church, but they were outstanding among the apostles. And this was a couple, and then Paul makes a little statement at the end of that saying that they came to Christ before he did. Well, Paul came to Christ pretty early after Jesus' death. And that probably means that Andronicus and Junia came to Christ during Jesus' lifetime. And the fact that they were apostles, one of the ways we define first century apostles is that they were eyewitnesses, direct eyewitnesses of Jesus. So they walked with him, they talked with him, they heard him teach, and then they passed that along. That's called the apostolic tradition. Remember in the early church, In Acts 2, it says they gathered and they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. Where did they get the apostles' teaching? From people like the 12 who were apostles. They walked and talked with Jesus. They heard his teaching. Now they can pass it along directly. But there were others like Andronicus 
and Junia. I think they were couples, perhaps 36 different couples that went out, probably to 36 different towns or communities, doing the mission work of our Lord. So what we see is some evidence that women were invited into Jesus' kingdom mission. Here's another point that we need to see. Women were invited into discipleship relationships with Jesus. And case in point is another passage at the end of Luke chapter 10. And it's an interesting story about Mary and Martha. Some of Jesus' very best friends. These were actually the sisters of Lazarus. And they lived in Bethany, which was just... uh, east of Jerusalem, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, probably two miles from Jerusalem in a place called Bethany. And it seems to be Jesus' favorite place to stay when he went to Jerusalem, to stay in the home of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. One of the reasons he probably liked to stay there is I believe Martha was an exceptionally good cook. We need to remember that in the backdrop of this story. So he's there. Look what he says in verse 38 of Luke 10. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me out. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, interestingly here, we have Martha in the kitchen, which was expected in their culture and day, making preparations, doing all the hosting. But Mary was doing something very countercultural. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I don't think she was just being part of a mutual admiration society. I think she was sitting there to be a learner. She was listening to Jesus who was teaching, what was he teaching? A discipleship lesson. You know, the word disciple, the biblical word means learner or student. And we know from Jesus' model that he was teaching his students, his disciples. He was then mentoring his students or his mentees so that they would go out at some point and they the learners would become teachers the mentees would become mentors making disciples who in turn would make disciples that was his method his in his uh, in his model so what we see here i believe is that mary is positioning herself as a learner as a disciple and guess what jesus said that was perfectly okay. In fact, it was the best choice that she can make. And he supported that. And we know that Mary and Martha go on to be very godly women who made a tremendous impact. What's interesting, if you get to John's gospel, when Lazarus dies, you might remember that story. Mary meets Jesus, or Martha meets Jesus first, and then she goes to Mary and says, the teacher is here. She calls Jesus the teacher which probably implies that she too had come under Jesus' teaching as a learner. That's discipleship. And so I believe we have examples from these women and others 
that women were invited into discipleship relationships with Jesus. Here's a third point. Women were effective witnesses of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is probably one of my favorite stories in all the Bible because it's the story about the Samaritan woman at the well. And we see in this story probably the greatest example of how countercultural Jesus was willing to be. Let's just, we don't have time to read the story. We're going to read kind of the conclusion to it here in just a moment. So keep your place in John chapter 4. But let me just tell you all of the rules that Jesus broke by encountering this Samaritan woman at a well on a hot day around noon. First of all, Jesus was not supposed to be in Samaria. You might remember, you, some of you have some background, that the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along and did not coexist. They were hated enemies of each other. So much so that Jewish people would typically travel all the way around Samaria at an extra day's travel if they were going from either Judea to Galilee or Galilee to Judea, they would go around Samaria at an extra day to their travel. Why? Because they did not want to go through Samaria and deal with the Samaritans. They hated each other. He wasn't supposed to be in Samaria, but guess what? Jesus had a divine appointment. And who was his divine appointment with? It was with a Samaritan woman. And he was not even supposed to talk to a Samaritan woman, especially one that had a moral, uh, had, had a moral, morally checkered past. Again, another woman with a bad reputation, morally. And then he asked her for a drink. He wasn't supposed to drink from a Samaritan's dish or cup. That was part of the, the Jewish customs and rules. And so we see that he is breaking rule after rule and engaging this woman in meaningful conversation, loving conversation. He talks with her. He values her. He cares about her. He treats her with dignity and great worth, and he ministers to her. And then he offers her living water, tells her that he knows about her past slash present moral issues. He has a, a very strong theological conversation with her, answers her questions, reveals to her that he is the Messiah, and then watches as she enthusiastically invites her entire village to come and meet Jesus. Perhaps he really is the Messiah. He told me everything about myself. And then what happens? Well, let's turn and look at the end of the story in John chapter 4, beginning with verse 39. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. A revival breaks out because of this woman in a Samaritan village. And it appears that most, if not all of the village, came to faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, as Lord, 
all through the powerful testimony and witness of this very effective, intelligent woman who meets the Lord and is loved by the Lord and is used by the Lord. One final little episode. Let's turn to John chapter 20. The point here that I'm going to make is that women were chosen to be the first to announce the resurrection of Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18, we have this incredible story uh, really about a, um, at the empty tomb. Let's pick this up in verse 11. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She went over to look into the tomb. This is Mary Magdalene. And saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Again, teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And then Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said, these things to her. Wow, that's extraordinary. You you and I cannot understand really the amazing thing that's being described right here. In that culture, in that world where a woman was not even allowed to testify in a court of law as an eyewitness because her testimony was not considered trustworthy or reliable, it's, it's Mary Magdalene. That's the choice. You know what? I think I like to just think of, of God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit having this discussion. All right, so who are we going to choose? Who are we going to choose to be the first to make the announcement that Jesus is risen? The greatest announcement, the greatest proclamation that the world has ever heard and ever will hear. Who are we going to choose? Well, we could choose Peter. He's kind of the default leader, the apostles. We could choose John, the beloved. Probably went through a long list of, of men. And then I just see them with a smile on their face. And they all look together in agreement. And they said, let's choose Mary. Why Mary? Well, Mary had been there from the beginning to the end, every single step of the way, healed by Jesus, passionately committed to Jesus, on mission trips with Jesus, was there through the good times, the bad times, always showing up, always had his back, was there when He was beaten and publicly humiliated at his trial, was there when Pontius Pilate 
ordered that Jesus be executed, was there when Jesus was carrying his cross and stumbled and fell because he was so bludgeoned by even before he got on the cross, was there every moment of the crucifixion. Why? Because Jesus needed her. She loved him. She was going to do everything she could to be with him through thick and thin. He was her Lord. He was her Savior. And even after he died, she was there at the tomb wanting to honor him. And so God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, Jesus said, it's got to be Mary. It's got to be Mary. I think this is one of the greatest statements in the Bible about what Jesus thinks of women and women in ministry. Let's not forget it. You know, as we've gone through this series, we fast forward from the Gospels to the early church. We see that they too were radically countercultural in the way they valued women, treated women, invited women into the kingdom mission, into discipleship, into evangelism and witness, and even into proclaiming the resurrection. Why was that? Why was the early church so radically different? It was because of the example of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we too need to be willing to be different, to be radical. You know, this is really not about church hierarchy, leadership. You can be a complementarian, and there's a lot of good scriptures that support that the overarching hierarchy might need to be men. There's scriptures that support that, but there's also a lot of scriptures that we would say are on the egalitarian side. This is, and, and that's valuable and meaningful. And we have to, we can agree to disagree on the specifics about that. And it's okay here at Calvary, there's room for complementarians, there's room for egalitarians, but there is something we must all agree upon and we can and should. And that is that women are innately valuable and innately included, welcomed, invited into using their spiritual gifts and their talents to help us proclaim the kingdom of God for the glory of our King. That's who we are. That's who we need to continue to be as Calvary Baptist Church, serving our King and glorifying His kingdom together as committed men and women committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org. Thank <laughs> you.